I'm Jeff Cohen. It's not every day you meet someone who became an expert in Islamic extremism and radicalization, but that's the case for our next guest, Lauren Steinberg. She also found her way to Jewish observance and is here today to share the tale of her career and religious journey. Lauren, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. It's so good to be here. Thank you. So clearly I said some things in the introduction that's going to tell me we have a very unique interview that's about to unfold, but let's learn a little bit about you. And I think even from what you sent me to prepare for the interview, we should even start beyond just you, maybe your parents and grandparents in terms of their background that sets the stage for your journey. So my grandmother remembers this story. She tells it like it was yesterday, that this kid Moshe came into her class and he'd, I guess, been learning Torah. He'd been in a more religious environment. He comes into her secular Soviet school probably when she was around six because she left school at eight when World War II broke out and She said Moshe came in and I beat him up Whoa, um, which to a, to a six-year-old, you know, I think it says something's wrong and I don't know how to deal with this I don't know how to solve this issue and so that's my grandmother and my grandfather came from a dramatically different background of growing up in a Hasidic family in Poland pre-war obviously and as a teenager he had some qualms about religion and um, most of his childhood stories go like this I was doing x thing you can insert cutting my hair or tending my neighbor's sheep um, I was playing soccer and my insert x relative father mother grandmother says to me why are you playing soccer like the goyim better you should go study till him every single story and when World War II broke out, they'd been living in Lodz, but they moved to a town where his grandparents lived. And so there wasn't a huge ghetto. The Jews were kind of in one area. The Nazis were rounding them up. And for some reason, they knew it was they needed to get out. And my great-grandfather, who never really had a career, he was like a writer sometimes. He sold books. He sold shmatas. He wrote mezuzahs. He said, I can't do it. I can't leave Shabbos observance. I can't stop keeping kosher. I can't leave the community. And I know escaping means all those things. If I go with you, we're all going to die. But if I go with the people, I'll die and you'll all survive. Which is a crazier story because out of a town in Poland, my grandfather, his mother, his two sisters, and his brother all survived the war. So that's where he was in his Jewish observance. He remembers hiding in the forest and reciting those Tehillim, um, which he knew by heart. And having a sense of ambiguity about what that heritage was that he was bringing forward with him. Post-war, he met my grandmother, they got married. My mother was born in the Soviet Union. And religion was obviously not encouraged, and they had no reason to be observant. But there was an unspoken story there. And I think that unspoken story carried through to my mother, and ultimately carried through to me and my siblings. So their story that, at this point in Russia, finds its way to the United States somehow? Yeah, so they came to the United States in 1973. My mother was 13 years old, and... Somehow, through, I guess, the Jewish agency, it's a little unclear to me, she had the opportunity to go to a Lubavitch summer camp that summer. And she went, and the staff of the camp came to her parents and said, 
your daughter expressed an interest in continuing her Judaism, and we'd like to put her in a Jewish school. And her parents were like, look, we have no money. <laughs> like, we just got here from the Soviet Union, but if you can find a school that'll take her, fine. And uh, my mother went to a base Yaakov high school that took her for basically zero tuition, you know, a few dollars a month just to exact an exchange. And had this kind of double life in high school where her family at home was completely non-observant, as was she, but she was obviously in a very from environment, in a Lubavitch summer camp, in a base Yaakov high school, and she loved it. And she wanted it, but even though she was learning those things, she was also learning English, and she was learning a completely new culture, and she was a young teenager, and actual observance realistically seemed unattainable. But she loved it, and she always thought in her relationships she wanted to find someone who could bring more Judaism, more thickness of that heritage into her life. Um, Enter my father. I was just going to say, that's the perfect lead-in to say, what's your father's background and how does he come into the picture? But you asked yourself the question, so go ahead. His father served in the U.S. military in World War II, and in his telling story, always throughout battle, carried a sitter in his front pocket, knowing full well, because people did sort of know what would happen if he was captured with that sitter. My father kind of flirted with observance as an adolescent. His family wasn't Shomer Shabbos. He tried to be for a few years. It's hard to be different like that as a teenager. Um, and he wasn't sure it was the right path for him, but he kept basic kashrut. He kept, I say it, he was Zohar Shabbat, um, right? He kept half of that. And um, it was a good shidduch. They fell in love. And so I was born into a family that was, I would say, traditional. We always had Shabbat dinner. We kept a basic level of kashrut. We went to shul often on Shabbos morning. And I went to a reform preschool. The plan was for me to go to public school, but I came home singing like bim bomb. And my mom <laughs> said, how can we lose this? <laughs> and so I wound up in a Solomon Schechter. Okay, so what you didn't mention, though, is where you were raised. So you talked about your parents, but where does your story actually begin? In what town? Yeah, so I grew up in Rockland County, New York, which you or listeners might know as being where Muncie is. I did not grow up in Muncie. It was very white bread suburbia. Everyone played Little League soccer and baseball. It was actually a very Jewish area, but not a very observant area. Um, but being near Muncie meant that, as far as I knew, Orthodox Judaism was ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Judaism. Women with two head coverings and 12 children. And I did not see that, especially growing up fairly secular, as a life choice for me. So as far as I was concerned, Orthodox Judaism was ruled out from the get-go. Um, and conservative Judaism seemed great. So that's where we were at. What you probably don't know, because in preparing for these interviews, you send me bullets about your life so I can think of some good questions. But what I didn't tell you is that I was born and raised in New City and had the same experience as you of seeing oh Muncie gosh. next door and thinking that's what Orthodox Judaism was and not realizing there are all kinds of levels. So I think we had a pretty similar background. I was a public school kid. You just mentioned you were in the Solomon Schechter system. So what was that like compared to maybe what it would have been, you think, if you were in a public school system? Well, so I went to Solomon Schechter through fifth grade and then actually went to public school after that. And I'm very grateful 
for my Solomon Schechter education because for me, I was lucky in that it gave me a foundation for a future Torah learning. I knew some Hebrew, I knew how to read, I knew how to read Rashi script even. And so learning after that, I think, really gave me a leg up. Why did you switch in the first place? I mean, was it were you part of that decision? Maybe you're too young to remember why you went from a Solomon Schechter environment to a public school situation. Yeah, I think the Solomon Schechter academically and socially had not been ideal for me. I actually did not want to switch, whether because as an 11-year-old it was just all I knew um, or because something was pulling, apparently. I wrote a letter to Tzivos Hashem magazine, which, again, my mom had subscribed me to. Something was there saying, my parents are taking me out of Jewish school. Please help. But I never sent it because <laughs> I was 11. I left it in my desk drawer and my mom found it a few months later. <laughs> but I, I, I thrived in public school is the truth. Um, socially and academically, just as my parents had suspected. But I always knew, and I had it more thickly because I was coming from a Jewish environment, I always knew that I was missing tefillah, that I was missing Torah learning, that I wished I could get more deeply. And so I invested in, in those places that I could find that would give that to me. I was in a number of Hebrew high school programs, as they were called, and ultimately found my way to the Columbia JTS undergraduate program in hopes of being in a richer Jewish environment. So you had what kind of bat mitzvah, given the fact that you were in the Solomon Schechter environment, you switched to public school, how would you characterize that? And then we'll move into the the college years. I was just curious what that experience was like. Yeah, so I had a conservative bat mitzvah. I leaned Torah and Haftorah, and I led davening. I also freaked people out a little bit because apparently there was supposed to be like a ceremony where they call you up and they present you with a talis, and that's when your bat mitzvah kind of starts. And I, I didn't want to wear a talis. That didn't seem right to me. And it didn't seem right in my family. And the rabbi was like, well, what are you going to do? When will you call, will he call you up? And I said, well, what if I just sit in the chair to begin with? And that seemed to be an okay solution. <laughs> <laughs> but again, yeah, my family was somewhat traditional. I say theologically we had an orthodox upbringing. We just didn't know that. So you actually knew this idea that like a talus is for a man, because I would think when I'm interviewing people who really don't have a lot of background, they wouldn't even necessarily know that or realize there could be something perceived as wrong about a woman wearing a talus or not. But I think because you had more of a background in what your parents knew, I guess this was more front and center for you as you were about to have that experience. Yeah. And, you know, it must have been from my parents. They just didn't think women should be wearing it and I didn't feel like I wanted to wear it. It felt something wasn't quite right and I didn't want to be on that vanguard. So now as we progress the story, you mentioned Columbia going to college. So what are you thinking in terms of what you want out of your education? Are you thinking about a career and what role is religion now playing during the college years? Yeah, so I went in wanting to be a JTS, a Talmud major. I don't think I had a strong career in mind. People were definitely from high school encouraging me to pursue policy or politics. So I think that was at the back of my head, but something Jewish, not necessarily formed, also felt really important to me. And and I didn't have, coming into college, a strong career plan. I, at Columbia, majored in political science, which I loved. And at JTS, started taking Talmud classes. And I guess that was when I started to put together that what I was learning there in the Talmud classes and the other Jewish studies classes wasn't the way I wanted to be learning. 
it didn't mesh with how I felt about Judaism, how I felt about theology, really. It wasn't what I believed in and what I wanted my Judaism and my Jewish experience and conversations to feel like. And so in the course of that, well, two things happened. One, I was not a Talmud major. I switched to Jewish history, modern Jewish studies. And two, at Columbia, I had the opportunity to encounter a really vibrant and thriving modern Orthodox young community. And I said, oh, this is kind of what I've been looking for. This is effectively what I've been doing. It wasn't so much a journey at that point. You know, I'd started keeping Shabbos in high school and I just started identifying differently. So let's just go back to high school for a minute, because if you're in public school and you decide you're going to start keeping Shabbos or doing other things that would make you more observant, I would have thought you've found yourself in an environment that's not really conducive to your own growth. So how did you find a way to push yourself when you're not surrounded by like-minded people? Because I could have seen it happening more easily at Columbia when you mentioned you start seeing all the modern Orthodox crowd and you kind of find your home, but you didn't even know about that at the time you started growing religiously. Yeah, and you know, this is why... I like to start the story with my grandparents because there was just something in the air. I, for as long as I could remember, had wanted to keep Shabbos. Um, and I don't remember this, but my parents tell me that as a young child, you know, second, third grade, I had, to the extent that I had the knowledge and maturity, said I was going to. And they said, okay, but you can't do non-Shomer Shabbos things and just not do your homework. Like, that doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's got to be all or nothing. And at seven, eight, obviously, I wasn't quite there. Um, But by 14, 15, I was. And I had just never stopped thinking that was the right thing to do. I always felt if we believe in Torah Misenai, which my family did, how can you not do what the Torah says, right? Either you believe in it or you don't. And so by high school, I was old enough that I said, I'm going to try this. And I had always wanted to. I did still in high school, and this is the position of the conservative movement, drive to shul. That was important to me because I felt that I needed a community and a space to be in, a space to daven on Shabbat. But otherwise, I, I transitioned in over a period of months, and it was very important to me that I try it because it just seemed like the right thing to do. Again, if you believe in that. (laughs) But your parents are not keeping like an Orthodox home. So are you doing this as a single person within a family that's operating at a different level? What's that experience like? My parents were happy to drive to shul and we always had Friday night dinner. There were some things I think culturally that I learned more in college, like Shabbos lunch wasn't really a thing growing up, but... I still didn't do malacha at that point. Um, And I think, you know, many people who become observant have a period of transition where they're figuring out how it's going to work, their family's figuring out how they fit into the family. Everyone's kind of trying to make sure that they can live as a unit together and also pursue what they each need to do. Um, So there certainly was that transition, but to the extent that I felt able to within my family, I kept Shabbat in high school and then solidified, I guess, the edges of that observance in college once I once I had a better sense of what that meant in a community. And you're in the perfect place where you have the crowd that you want to have around you for where you're going to be holding at this point. So let's continue now with you get your degree. How does your career begin and where are you holding at this point in 
in terms of the type of community and the type of people that you're with? Yeah, so when I graduated, I had a degree in political science, and at that point, I did know what my career was. I wanted to do counterterrorism, um, and I was really interested in the radicalization and recruitment process, specifically as concerns the role of religion, right? Religion was an important factor in my life. Religion at the time, and still now, was a factor in many people's move to extremism. And I wanted to understand what can make a force that seems like it should be for good, occasionally a force that's for evil. And what's the line there? What's the dynamic there? How does that work? So I was really interested in researching that. And after college, I moved down to Washington, D.C., which was actually a critical time for me because pretty much all my friends stayed in New York. And so I had the opportunity to kind of, instead of being the sort of Balchuba type, to step into a community when I was already fully observant and to just be part of that regularly, um, which was really great for me. So I was in DC for a year after college and then I also moved back to New York. I got a master's also in political science and started working for the Anti-Defamation League after that, which was a wonderful experience. I was really interested, especially in reading the periodicals put out by Islamic extremist organizations. Many of them, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, have English language magazines that they use in an attempt to recruit people. What's interesting about them is when you see people you know featured in those periodicals. So I was taking a class with somebody at Columbia and writing a paper for that professor on Al-Qaeda's magazine and the evolution of its propaganda, and reading it very closely, found his name in one of their sections, which was kind of cool. And so you also just mentioned you were back in New York City. That seems to be the kind of place a special someone might come into your life. So are you dating at that point? Is that where you meet your future husband? I was dating. I met my husband a few years later. In a kind of funny story, I happened to live, despite being in New York and from New York, with two roommates who grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. And a different close friend of mine was from St. Louis, Missouri, and they all kept saying I should date this guy who was also from St. Louis, Missouri. Anyway, we weren't sure at first, but we wound up in the same friend group, and one by one, everyone from that group married each other. <laughs> so we did too, and it's been great. And what was his background compared to yours? My husband grew up in a fully orthodox home. His parents actually grew up conservative, which is interesting. So he had kind of some family that wasn't observant, and he'd learned growing up how to relate to people from different backgrounds, I think. Interestingly, he says he grew up modern orthodox, but a lot of his family is yeshivish now. So they also kind of moved forward. And so as, as your life starts to take off together... I know today you're not doing counterterrorism. So does your career transition out of that? And what's the next phase now that you're settling down as a couple? Yeah, you know, I loved doing counterterrorism. It was so cool and so interesting. And I felt like I was making a really big impact. At a certain point, though, it seemed very clear to me that the impact I was making did not outweigh the evil I was seeing. And I really, at a certain point, felt like it was harming my soul. And I just watched people murdering people and like glorifying it. It wasn't worth it. I didn't feel like I was doing enough to help that I could justify still being in that situation and still seeing those things and still coming home with that burden in me. Around that time, and maybe this is part of it, we had our first child. 
And my husband has smicha from YU and was doing his PhD at Yale. And an opportunity opened up to be the OUJLIC couple at Yale. And it was perfect for him. And I needed a change. And so we, we took the job. And it's really been amazing. It's such a blessing, such a bracha to have Torah as part of my everyday life and work. And to be able to work with these truly wonderful students who really just inspire us every single day. We're very grateful. And for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with what O-U-J-L-I-C stands for, if you could spell it out and just kind of go through the mission of the organization overall and then what you're specifically doing on campus. Absolutely. So O-U-J-L-I-C is the Orthodox Union's Jewish Learning Initiative on campus. It places rabbinic couples on campuses throughout North America and Israel right now. And the goal is to be a home and a support system and infrastructure and learning and a tour environment for students who choose to be on secular campuses. Here at Yale, we do tour learning programs and we do chavrusas with the students. We ensure that there is minion regularly, that there is an eruv, that there's kosher food, that there's a Shabbos environment available. We invite students to our house for social events and for meals. And for us, it's, you know, our core constituency are those students who grew up or lean towards observance, but also those students who just see Judaism as a critical part of their lives often come to our programs, um, regardless of their affiliation of the, or their observance. And some students who don't even, but they're curious. You know, we have students who we see every year for Rosh Hashanah or for our Pesach Seder that we host um, when many other people go home or for a social program even that this is an amazing opportunity for them to experience Orthodox Jewish life and Orthodox Jewish people and role models. One of the things you hear a lot about is how hard or easy it is for a kid who goes through the day school system and then let's say gets into YU, Yeshiva University, and also gets into a prestigious secular college like Yale, Penn, etc. And the family's trying to decide how safe or risky is it in terms of their continued religious progression to go to a secular college. So you're the perfect person to ask this question because you're living on the ground in the thick of this, of what you see about a kid choosing a secular college and how hard or easy it is to stay on the path. You know, we can't and don't want to encourage anyone to go to, let's say, Yale or Yeshiva University. You can have more tutorial learning opportunities at YU. You're going to have more peers who are from at YU. You're in a tour environment there. So that's a choice that students have to make. That said, just like you say, we often encounter people who say, look, my siblings all went to Yeshiva University, but I got into Yale. Like, how do you turn that down? And, you know, it's worth noting that they applied to Yale to begin with, right? So this was an option on the table for them. Um, but at a place like here, you have to work on being observant. You have to put in effort. You can't just slide by. You also have the opportunity and the necessity, if you're committed to it, to be a leader. We need every guy to wake up for Minyan, or we will not have a Minyan here. We need people to come to Shiurim, or they will be empty rooms. And so the opportunities for leadership and for growing are here and they're strong, but the students have to want them and they have to be committed to them in order for it to work. You can't just slide by. I think that's a very 
objective, fair answer. I'm picturing parents who have kids who are in high school that are sophomores, juniors, seniors, who know their kid is applying and to be thinking about this decision and what it would mean to be fully in the infrastructure of a place like YU versus the challenges you just described of being in a secular college, as good as the school may be. And it actually reminds me of a friend of mine who got into Columbia, NYU, chose to go to Columbia, and now many years later is saying he wishes he had gone to YU, not just for the religious environment, but for all the people that he would have met that he now sees are in all these senior positions at these companies led by a lot of Jewish people and how they all take care of each other and remember each other from YU. So there's there's another extra benefit down the road also of staying in, in the cocoon of YU, I would think. Yeah, no, and, and I think ultimately everyone has to make their own choice knowing themselves is the advice that we give students. You know, I don't want to suggest for when we have Students who are no doubt going to be leaders in the Jewish community here, just as there are students who are no doubt definitely going to be leaders in the Jewish community at YU. And ultimately, everyone has to make a decision about where they feel that they can personally grow. And so as you think about your life as a couple and and the family that you're building, I've interviewed other folks who work for JLIC, and it's not necessarily something they do forever. It can be like a temporary stop onto something that comes next. So I would think you and your husband have had that conversation about where the journey is going to go after this. So what's on the horizon for you? Look, we're very grateful to be here at OUJLIC. We really, we love this work. It's just amazing. I have only good things to say about OUJLIC, about both doing the work of OUJLIC and about working for the OU and OUJLIC as an organization, really. And we're lucky here in New Haven that there is a day school our children can go to. So we're not as limited by opportunities as some people are in places where there's really no infrastructure for Jewish families. Our oldest is in kindergarten and you know we're open to what comes next but we're also very happy being here. That was an excellent advertisement for the OU which we should say is the sponsor of this podcast as well so thank you for saying that and so before we close the interview we'd like to do something called the lightning round. I'm going to ask you some fast questions to close things out so are you ready? I'm ready. So when I go in New York City, I'm always seeing this sign that says, if you see something, say something. Now, you're a counterterrorism expert, so tell our listeners, what should they be looking for? What's the kind of thing that they would see that should tell them, I better say something? Well, I'm not going to tell you what to look for on the subway, because I think you can decide for yourself. But I do think it's worth noting that if you're in a shul, if you're in a Jewish communal institution, you see someone who doesn't belong, who's driving around, who's looking around, who seems to be paying attention to when people come in, who's in the parking lot when they don't belong there. That's absolutely something to report. I am a New Yorker, New York sports fan. Our producer, Gary, is big time into Boston sports. You are in the middle of this as a Connecticut person. So what is it like living between the insanity of New York versus Boston sports? Yeah, we root for St. Louis. (laughs) That's the safe bet, so you don't have to be on either side of what you're surrounded by? 100%. Last question. You have Shabbos meals for the students that you're supporting, and I'm wondering what the signature dish is. If I'm ever up in New Haven, or if you have students coming regularly, what they look forward to at your Shabbos table. We're actually big fans of chicken chillant, kind of like hameen, but we put in um, rice or farro with chicken and various spices. It's just something a little bit different. Warm, very good. And our four-year-old loves it. Okay, Lauren, you are out of the lightning round, and I want to just say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so very much. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. 
That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.